I don't want to sort of run down any other part of the church, but sometimes we get the feeling in certain movements that, you know, certain gifts are seen as being more important and they're usually the sort of the more <laughs> sensational gifts like prophecy One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit healing. is administration. And Precisely. I've never heard anyone say, i got the gift of administration, hallelujah. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is sharing our faith. How do we do that in this modern world when no one seems to want to hear about it? Um, lots of people think badly of Catholics, or frankly, they just don't want to be bothered with all these silly things like God and heaven and hell and yawn, people telling me what to do. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by Father Sam Lynch, a local parish priest here in Sydney. Welcome, Father Sam. Thank you. It's great to be here. And by our special guest, Clara Gagan, a researcher, educator, church historian with a deep commitment to the empowerment of lay people in the church. And she's recently joined the Australian Catholic Bishops Conference as an executive secretary. But the way I have been in contact with her over the last few well, more than a few years now, is that she's been the co-director of the Australian branch of the Siena Institute, which is particularly concerned with this question. Welcome, Clara. Thank you, Peter. Great to be here. Before we get started, just a reminder that if you like the show, you should subscribe on your podcast app and that way you won't miss an episode. So let's get stuck into it. Sharing our faith. What do we mean by faith when we say sharing our faith? Perhaps it's probably a good time to throw to the priest in the room. Uh, what do we mean by faith? In the readings um, for the fourth Sunday, fifth Sunday of Easter, uh, the first reading there's um, from the Book of Acts because in Eastertide we we have uh, a lot from the Book of Acts, and I noticed that the the very last line of it is talks about how there were some priests, that is, some Jewish priests, who had made their submission to the faith. A large group of priests had made their submission to the faith. And for some reason, that stuck out for me, because I suppose submission or obedience, which is another way of translating that, isn't a word that I immediately associate with faith. Hmm. And then I looked at um, the New Testament and discovered that it <laughs> does everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely everywhere. It uses this notion of obedience or submission or giving oneself over to uh, mm. the faith everywhere. So I, I think that's a good place to start. It is a very good place to start, but I'll throw some ideas that came out from a, there's a theologian called Avery Dulles who wrote a book on faith. And he suggested there's seven different ways of looking at faith. He loves to do this model thing, but there's seven different ways of looking at faith. And I'll throw them around. And I think one of them was obedience of faith, but in some respects it was taken too far by uh, some people in the in the past saying, all you have to do is do what God says. You know, that's not what we mean by obedience of faith, but giving yourself over to the God who makes promises and trusting him to to you know to fulfill his promises. So there's trust sort of version of faith where you just trust God. There's another one which is to obey God and submit your happiness and health to him. There's one that some people, um, when we talk about faith, mean propositions like statements about God. Like we say, let's confess the faith. We don't all stand up and say, yeah, I believe God. Um, we actually say specific things about God. We say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So there's a kind of a set of propositions that we're all committed to. 
And then there's the experiential faith. Some people talk about the deep personal experiences they've had, which have you know bound them more strongly in a personal relationship with God. And then there's the ones that say, like in James in the New Testament, who say our faith isn't really a faith if it doesn't actually play itself out in our, in what we do. Hmm. And so how, doers and it changes, of the word, not hearers. Only. That's right. To yeah. to get out there and do stuff. Um, and in fact, if you say you've got faith, but then don't actually live in God's love and you don't love other people, then Jesus says, if you say you love and you don't do this, you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. And uh, there's some people who say, well, faith is this this thing which takes us beyond the normal reality into the transcendental reality of God. Yeah, okay. That's true, but you don't want to get too much in the clouds that you miss the concrete nature of what faith is. And that faith is actually a personal relationship with God. Yes. A in deep fact, personal. In in fact, St. Paul uses the same idea of submission to each other in talking about marriage. So he does. He's he's actually talking about a a a willingness to give way to the other. In uh, and so faith is actually, as you say, it's it's not just a kind of a philosophy. Um, or a way of thinking about things or a way of living. It's actually belief and trust in a person, in Jesus yeah. Christ. There's a lot of what was, was said that really resonates with me. The first was, you know, Father Sam saying, uh, giving oneself over. And I, I think that's really interesting in that if you work out of a faith grounding, it's not about you. It's about what the Holy Spirit can do in and through you. And so that whole question of obedience is it's not an obedience to something external, but an obedience to how the Spirit is working in me. And that's where you need some sort of discernment. And that's where, you know, the propositional stuff comes into play as well, because I can't be told through my experience something that contradicts what the church believes. Yeah, and it's it's quite difficult to come up with complex theological definitions from my feelings. You know, I, I don't sit yeah, there and go, yeah. hmm, I feel that Jesus is true God and true man. You know, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> but, but what we try and tell people in the, the work that I've been doing is there's, there's a number of things that come into play as to, in order to know whether it's the will of God. One is how I feel because I do feel a sense of fulfilment, a sense of peace, a sense of purpose. But mm. the other is that what I do must build the kingdom and not just that, but other people must recognise that that work is good. Now, when you say other people, you'd, you'd be talking about other people who have the same faith, who, who, who have yeah, the same yeah, yeah. But, spirit but working in them. People yeah. recognise that it's, it's, it's a work of God and that it is a good thing. Here's my problem with them, um, and again, I'm just poking holes as the devil's advocate to try and get our definition more clearly. Um, could it be said, for example, that if we rely on those things, then it really does depend a whole lot on who your community is that you're trusting and who, what the propositions are that you're trusting. Because, for example, I was raised an evangelical. I spent some time in the Pentecostals, uh, have been a Lutheran minister uh, briefly and have been a Catholic for quite some time now. Now, in all of those communities, I genuinely committed myself to what I believed was the faith and the propositions of the faith and the, until they became tested in quite serious ways. And uh, 
but the genuineness, if you like, of my commitment, of my self-offering wasn't sufficient. It wasn't enough. Just being genuine, just being, you know, earnest, just being, you know, passionate about things isn't enough to make it good faith. Yes, because because at the end of the day, we're responding to uh, an action that God has taken first. Right. So faith is a response to um, God's action. So what, what yes. Jesus says to Thomas, doubt no longer, but be believing um, yes. when when he appears um, in, in the the week after the resurrection, and Thomas was the one who wasn't present the week before, and he says, "I'm not going to believe that Jesus is risen unless I can put my fingers into his hands and you know the the wounds in his hands and feet." Right. Uh, and Jesus turns up and says, uh, "Thomas, doubt no longer, but believe." It's his action first, and then Thomas's response is, "My Lord and my God." Um, right. So it's we we are our our faith is grounded in divine revelation, the fact that God has spoken. I would say that one of the things that influences what people think is their faith is their community and and the very strong sense of what they've been given as what's genuine and what's counterfeit. So when I was in the bank, for example, please don't hold that against me. The way they taught us about counterfeits wasn't that they showed us counterfeits, but they had us count the real money constantly, tediously until we got just the feel of it was in our blood. And then when I did actually come across a counterfeit note later on, I could tell it was a fake because it just felt wrong because I was immersed in the genuine article, you know, in the real stuff. And if if when I was um, in a different faith setting, I didn't realize some things were wrong because I'd never been taught that way and no one around me thought that way and no one had introduced me to a proper way of thinking about some things. Uh, so in other words, until that was challenged in me and I, I had to, to bring myself into a different community. But people talk a lot about think, like things like Catholic guilt or Catholic culture or things like that. And that's a good sign that the the entire sort of atmosphere, the, the social upbringing, if you like, in certain circles is working reasonably well when that sort of thing gets talked about. But we have to be honest with the elephant in the room is that the people who share our faith officially and unofficially are dwindling in Australia. So they're going down in quite drastic numbers. I know, Clara, you're over the research on this. Do you want to perhaps give us a bit of oh, more? I'm kind of over the research, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not great. It's not great because if we look at our percentage of people who tick the Catholic box at the census, we're looking at, you know, upward of 22, 23 percent of the Australian population, when we look at the number who front at church, depending on which diocese you're in, you're somewhere between 11 and 13 percent of that 22 percent. So we're right. talking a very, very small number. And then we like to look at that even further and say how many of that 11 percent of 22 percent could actually articulate what they believe and why um, mm. How many of them would we describe as intentional disciples or missionary yeah. disciples? And you're looking at about 5% of the 11%. The phrase you use there is um, intriguing. Mm. Intentional disciples. What do you mean by that? People who are not just cultural Catholics. Right. 
don't have. So they the don't just go to church t- and hang out with some Catholics and or, and hang out with some Catholics, but people who actually, you know, l- let's say, have a personal experience of the person of Jesus. And I guess I come from a different angle to yourself in that I was raised a cradle Catholic, and too much of what we were presented as faith was adherence to formulas. Right. Rather than a personal commitment to the person of Jesus. Now, I have absolutely no doubt that my mother, who was raised in Italy with a primary school education, she had a very profound personal faith, but it was kind of despite what she'd come through rather than because yes. of it. Now, it's, it's the formulas themselves. Now, I'm not going to have a go at formulas and faith because um, often um, liturgies and, and, and regular prayers keep us on the straight and narrow when we're not feeling it. You know, they're very strong aids to faith in that respect. But um, they, even back in the Brethren, they used to say that the, the six inches from head to heart is a long journey in terms of faith. You can you can mouth the formulas, even comprehend them and argue them and, and s- think that you're committed to them, but until it hits here in, in your deepest personal being. And as James says in the Bible, until it actually flows out into your the way you live and the choices you make. Because lots of people, I think, Clara, would claim to have a deep personal relationship with God. They would claim that, but their lives don't look any different to someone who doesn't make the same claim. Um, So what are we talking about when we say someone's got that personal relationship? Well, it has to reorient your whole way of being. And I think I'm also critical of perhaps another side of what you're saying in that a lot of people who profess faith in the church manifest that by more and more involvement within the church. And this is my real bugbear because I really think that the role of the laity is not in the church. The role of the laity is in the world. And I think we ought to be more engaged with what um, you know John Paul II would have talked about as the evangelization of culture but we're right. too frightened to stand in the public square. And I think that's because we actually have a lack of confidence in, in what it is that we believe. That's where I'd say the value lies in, if you like, the formulas. I'm, I, I think there is value in that. What I, I often say that a large part of what I do is um, joining the dots, particularly um, in schools. Um, when I've got kids... And I know that they know a whole lot of stuff. That's great because because then you can have a real conversation uh, about what it all means and how it all fits together. And so, you know, you're joining the dots for people or helping them rather to join the dots for themselves in a sense, leading them into that. And um, But you do have to have the dots first. Uh, there is value still in having the dots. It's just, and I, it's I just think some you of also our... need the other side, which is yeah. to join them up and Look, get the whole picture. I'm not disagreeing with that. And I think, you know, some of our earliest formulas come out of the letters of St Paul because somehow you have to be able to articulate what it is that you do believe. But mm. it has to be both, not yes. either or. And, yes. and I think we're not very good at... Having, I, th- I think the problem is we actually don't listen to where people are at 
and mm. make a judgment as to what is most appropriate for them at that point of their journey. And different mm. people are at different stages. Yep. Do you think, Clara, there's a little bit of fear there? Um, like, for example, I've noticed, now maybe I'm just being prejudiced here because I'm coming, I've come from outside Catholicism into Catholicism. I've noticed that if I use a phrase which is typically used by Protestants, it doesn't matter how true it is, it will be summarily rejected because it sounds Protestant, you know what I mean? Or if I use a phrase that comes from the Jewish scriptures, some people go, oh, it sounds a bit Jewish. Uh, or it sounds, you know, in other words, if it's not familiar to the formulation and the habits and the culture of things, then it becomes a bit suspicious. So I'm, because I'm teaching scripture, I'm passionate about Bible study. I think, honestly, part of a personal relationship with God, and the church has said this all along, part of a personal relationship with God is just to listen to him each day and to read the scriptures and to pray over them, etc. But if I try and put that out there, and often I'm sort of suspected as being, we don't want this Protestant sort of thing, making up magisterians in their own home, or perhaps we're just reading the Bible. But on the other hand, you can be too suspicious. For example, I know a lot of people, um, perhaps my vintage and older, who are suspicious, for example, of Latin the old style Psalms or something, because it, it represents for them something they thought they'd rejected, a kind of a rigid um, formulaic kind of faith. And they're scared of it almost because they're scared of being pulled back into that world. Look, I think in the contemporary culture, that really isn't a problem. Um, and I remember <laughs> when, when I was teaching secondary school, and we're talking over 20 years ago, very few kids could say that they had rosary beads at home or a Columban calendar or whatever. If they saw those things, they were at their grandmother's place. Right. So those sorts of cultural Catholic things are actually not present in the lives of a lot of the 22% who tick Catholic. Right. So there really isn't a fear of them being dragged back in, and that might explain why a lot of young people are actually quite fascinated by the Latin. I'm they not they see the stuff and they go, woohoo, yep. this is alien and interesting and cool. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, 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 it's certainly not the young people who are upset about it, by the way. It, it's it, it's an, almost a reversal from when I was young. The young mm. people seem much more fascinated with by the ancient mm. forms and the, and the really cool old uh, liturgies. And it seems to be people of a slightly older vintage who are fearful of it or, or perhaps they have memory of it. Well, you see, I have to say from my own upbringing, something like benediction was fairly alien. It just okay. didn't happen. It just didn't happen. Yep, and didn't. young people now, one of the, the, the most powerful things is, is adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. Yes, um, yep, and, it is. you know, to, to quote my friend Sherry Waddell, what she says about <laughs> adoration, she says, you know, all you've got to be able to do is is be present, she's, and she calls it spiritual <laughs> spiritual radiation therapy. And she says, as a Protestant, the first time she walked into a Catholic church, there was this deep sense of something different. And that's where I say to the Catholics who wanted to sort of eschew the the experiential. I mean, that's an experience. It's a yes. very real experience. Well, Clara, I can back that up by saying that um, one of my first experiences of being in a Catholic church, I, I did study and walked into churches and talked to priests before this, but when I was considering being Catholic, one of the first things I did was went to my local Catholic parish in Melbourne because uh, it was the next one on from me, um, and I used to sit uh, each 
Monday morning, I used to sit in adoration for an hour. And I didn't know why I was there. I had to actually think through, why am I here? There's nothing happening except that Jesus is there and I'm here. And, you know, it's a weird kind of, um, uh, uh, you're right, it's a personal, deep personal experience. And it can't be quantified or, or explained away. And there's no liturgy. when I mean, there is, of course, a liturgy around it. But, um, you know, it's a wonderful uh, just being with someone. The other, the other thing I could add to that, and I, I kind of, in a sense, I don't wish to because um, I, I kind of like to leave, leave the adoration uh, there and let it stand alone because I think, I think the the real presence, um, liturgy, well, uh, well done, um, pe- people time time spent in the real presence, these things are far and away. Far, well and truly far and away the best evangelizers um, and they should be the best evangelizers but because their direct experience with God with the mystery of God really truly present hidden and invisible yes but truly present and really active um, but I'd have to say and I do, and I say this regularly in homilies you know whenever I get the opportunity um, and uh, perhaps my parishioners will get a little bit nervous when I say it, but but I think every person that I have received into the church, and there's a fairly long string of them now, I can't remember them all, it's so many, I actually have to look at the list. I they've They're there beca- not because um, uh, they read, you know, the church fathers or something. I mean, I haven't dealt with too many intellectuals. They're there because they know someone who's a Catholic. They've met someone who's a Catholic. They've gone to their family home, perhaps. They've gotten to know them. They've become friends with them. And they they, they see what the Lord said his disciples would be known as his disciples by. Mm-hmm. They will know you by your love for one another. and it's And it's that love, which is God's love, not just some empty sort of human sentiment, but um, the mysterious, invisible power of the indwelling of God in people, truly alive with the Spirit. Uh, Sinners, yes, but nevertheless, the presence of God alive and active in their lives. In in the same way, but perhaps in a different degree, radiating to people from, you know, in the same way that the, the divine radiation, if you like, comes out of adoration, that, that they experience Christ in some way through them through Christian family life. So in other words, they can look and they can see this is different. This isn't ordinary life. This this is something unique that it's something I want a piece of this. This action, person this has something. I don't yes. know what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but they have something. They have some joy or peace in the face of difficulties, or, or you know, they're good to one another, and and they've got something. I don't know what it is, but I want it because I don't have it, and I want my life to be better. Especially that they're good to one another in ways that aren't normally done amongst humans. So this is where the face stands out. When like lots of people are good to each other when they're good, when it's in their best interest, when they're getting something out of it. But when it hurts, mm-hmm. when it's not normal, when when someone's kind to someone who's mean to them, you know that kind of thing really stands out as a different kind of love—a love that's not your typical thing. When they look after people who are annoying or frustrating, or, or you know, they have a genuine love which is that, goes beyond the that, normal. 
that uh, mother who who tragically lost, uh, I think it was three of her children in that terrible yes. car accident. I mean, her witness to faith is extraordinary, just extraordinary. You know, no one could fake that. No, no one could possibly no. fake that. So many people were astounded by that. I heard a lot of comments from non-churchgoers, from people who don't profess faith, who were profoundly moved. Yep. There are other ways people try and bring people to the Catholic faith, and we need to talk about them. And remember, we're talking here specifically in relation to what we call evangelization, which means sharing our faith. Some people seem to act as if I could win an argument against a Protestant, they might become Catholic. And when and when I was first became a Catholic, I was invited to all kinds of debates with Protestants. Um, so that and the idea seemed to be that if we could demonstrate, um, you know, that our argument stood up better than theirs, they'd all go, "Oh gosh, you're right," and become Catholic. But I've never actually seen that happen. In I've never seen anyone argue with a Catholic, lose the argument, and go, "Gosh, you're right. I have to become Catholic." I've seen lots of people argue with each other in their own denomination think through the questions quite deeply and then go looking for answers somewhere else. Uh, that's my story. But also we seem to have a similar approach to catechetics, that if we could just, you know, get the catechetics right, we would teach people how to be in the faith. Both of those things, by the way, are very good. Apologetics is about uh, dispensing with barriers that might be between me and my faith. So when I first became a Catholic, I really struggled with prayers to Mary. And I, I needed someone to help me get over that particular barrier and, and work through the reasons why it's a good idea and how it works beautifully with the rest of the faith. But I wasn't ready for apologetics until I wanted to be in the church, until I was already inclined that way. When before that, I wasn't in any way ready to receive those arguments. We really need to be listening to what the people who are seeking are actually asking because I think you can jump the gun too soon and give them all that catechesis and they're not receptive. Yep, one of the, the most off-putting things is when someone asks you a question and you give them the 40-minute answer, which they, they were just asking one thing. Well, there, there's my famous, there's my favourite story about the little boy, you know, age six or seven, walks in and says, hey, mum, where did I come from? And his mother thinks, oh, no, I, I didn't expect it to come so soon. So she sits down and gives him the whole birds and the bees talk. And the kid's <laughs> looking a bit puzzled and she says, what's wrong? He says, oh, that's all very interesting. But Sally next door said she came from Adelaide. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to make sure you're answering the right question. <laughs> exactly right. So and and often when we try and give them the entire complete theological structure of something, we're not really, they've only got ears for the question they've asked. And so if they say, don't you guys worship Mary, then the only thing they're interested in is the answer to that particular question, not the whole theology around that whole thing. They just want that particular question. Catechetics and, and arguing people into the faith, so to speak, has been rumoured to work. Uh, <laughs> but... but the contrary to what you said, but it it often takes saints to do it. Right. And so if you if you if you know a little about um, the great Reformation saint Saint Francis de Sales, 
he was a deeply learned person and he was able to explain the faith to people. Um, he was a, obviously a profoundly gifted teacher because he was able to explain the, the faith to people and, in a sense, figure out or intuit or ask or find out what the question was for people. Mm. He was right. actually able to speak to the need that people had. But he had. also has a, a great personal integrity which carried weight there. Yes, well, you took the words out of my mouth. That was my next <laughs> right, point, <sorry. laughs> but which, which, which I've already made by saying it requires saints. Yes. Um, that, that actually if you are a person who has been um, objectively transformed from within by uh, the grace of God, then you are a person who is necessarily going to be an instrument fit for God's purpose because it's God who wishes us to spread his gospel. And, but, and if we've been, if we've allowed ourselves to be made into the instruments that he desires, then at all levels, um, supernatural, natural, preternatural, you know, at all levels, mind, heart, soul, word, uh, we, we've become an instrument fit for that purpose. But how often do we tell people that that is precisely what they're being called to? With nauseating frequency, in my case. Well, in your role, I, <laughs> I find people are astonished when you tell them they're called to be saints. Yes, yes. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not suggesting that's why it's I say it so often. Yeah, it's both. It's both a frightening and, admittedly, it's both a frightening challenge, but it's also a quite a and a liberating challenge. I mean, the fact that you can be called by God to be a saint means it's amazing. It's quite scary because, oh my goodness, that's such a huge thing to aspire to. But it's it's also quite liberating because God wouldn't ask it of me if it wasn't possible. Well, it's it's the please don't send me to Africa syndrome. <laughs> See, we Can think, you explain and, that, Clara? Pope, Sorry. Well, Pope Benedict says that, you know, sometimes people fear that what we're being called to is going to mean, you know, leaving something very precious behind. And and we talk about the please don't send me to Africa syndrome in that, you know, if God wants me to do something, he's going to want me to do something that's really, really, really horrible. But the and funny hard. thing is I met a woman. She actually came and did a called and gifted workshop because she'd been working in Africa. She had an MBA, but she'd been working in Africa, in Tanzania, in a school. And she'd come back to Australia and her family were saying, you know, Go get yourself a proper job. You've got an MBA. Stop wasting yourself in Africa. Anyway, she went back to Africa because that's where she was truly happy and fulfilled and that's where she felt God was calling us. So what God is calling us to is that which will be most fulfilling. It might be painful getting there, but he actually wants the best for us, not to provide us with difficult hurdles. I actually found that um, the recent... Um, tour of the relics of the parents of Saint Therese of Lisieux were really helpful in that regard because mm. um, the, here's a married couple that John Paul the Pope John Paul II canonized Louis and Zelie Martin who who um, you know a very I think they're very relatable I mean mm. Louis had a had a temper uh, Zelie tended to be over anxious they both had to help each other in in overcoming those faults. Um, 
Zeli had a business uh, and and was managing a household with quite a few kids. So, you know, they had employees and they were always careful to be just to them. Uh, there's so much there's so much in their life lives which is relatable and they didn't go to Africa. They weren't called to no. be missionaries. In fact, neither was Saint Therese of Lisieux, who who also, being a Carmelite nun, you know, also felt the desire to go out and do something wonderful and magnificent and in fact found that her calling was just to be at home and pray and her parents calling was to be raising their kids running their business being good catholic yep. you know being good christians and they became saints when i preached in my parish this is a long time ago i'm not not as a catholic i'd just like to point out to the listener <laughs> <laughs> when i preached in my parish about uh, mission once I gave a big grand thing about being open to God's call and and then one of the very wise old ladies in the parish came to me and said uh pastor what if um what if God has only called you to preach to two people in your whole life just two what if he's called you just to those two and um should you hold that call and I said yeah yeah you should oh, of course I was a young young enthusiastic young clergyman yes of course you should always listen to God's call you just need to be sure that it's God's call and she said well go home and play with your children uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> okay so basically she was saying look stop trying to be grandiose and do all these things that you believe will be grand gestures of evangelization God has given you people in your life to love God has given you tasks and missions in your life to do God is and do them extra, with extraordinary love and extraordinary faith not looking for the fanfare or the official stamp of approval from all the world but just to do them because they they it's a good and just and wonderful thing to do part of uh, now if I can flick over we're getting towards the business end of our podcast and I want to flick over to Clara here because part of your work Clara is to help um, people in local communities identify the kinds of things they can do, even if they don't realise it themselves. So do you want to talk a little bit more about that? This is your work with the Siena Institute I'm talking about. Yeah, I guess I've spent quite a few years running what I might describe as spiritual gift discernment workshops um, right. to help people discern those gifts that they receive at baptism. And I've also made outrageous statements like there's no shortage of vocations because with every baptism, there is a vocation given, but what we have is a shortage of discernment. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because this workshop, this type of discernment is something that comes about in the life of a, of a mature Christian. It's not what we send people off to do when they begin to have inklings that they may want to become a Christian or may want to become a Catholic. But it's a way of helping people identify their baptismal vocation through the gifts that we have been given. And those gifts are very clear in the writings of St. Paul. Um, they are gifts that in the early church, the church fathers would have expected to be manifest after a person was baptised. But we have seemed to have desensitised ourselves to that a little bit. Mm. And I think... One, one of my key challenges or one of the, the, the issues that grasps me at the moment is, is how do we marry the hierarchical gifts of the church, which are those leadership gifts, with yep. the gifts of the baptised, which are those gifts that will 
take Christians into the world, into those places that, you know, Vatican II in Lumen Gentium tells us the light of Christ might not otherwise shine. So I guess this takes me back to evangelization of culture, but it has to begin with evangelization of people who then see that bigger picture. Can I throw something there? St. Paul talks about ordering of gifts. So putting them in right order. Now, one of the the problems we have is when someone decides they're gifted, they then feel that everyone's obliged to endure their gift. So if I decide I'm a beautiful singer and therefore the entire parish now needs to pay me and look at me while I sing as part in the math. That's not the way it works in terms of you're talking about these gifts clearly have, you know, if they're there, if they're genuine and they're discerned in conjunction with the community, they, they have a place, but it's not necessarily where I personally no, would like to be not. seen doing them. And I think I tried to say that at the beginning of this, this podcast in that it isn't about us. It's about how the Holy Spirit wants to work through us. And, yes. you know, I, I'm, I don't want to sort of run down any other part of the church, but sometimes we get the feeling in certain movements that, you know, certain gifts are seen as being more important and they're usually the sort of the more sensational <laughs> gifts like prophecy One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit healing. is administration. And Precisely. I've never heard anyone say, I've got the gift of administration, hallelujah. Well, you know, I've had people come through the workshop who discovered that their, their administration was a gift and it actually built them up. Because oh, good. So, yeah, yeah, because they knew that what they was doing was good. Because someone, you know, someone like Florence Nightingale actually had the gift of administration. She yes. invented mm-hmm. medical records. Right. She she invented medical records. She That's championed a huge thing. healthcare reform through Parliament. She wasn't the the mercy type charism who sat by the side of the soldiers of the Crimean War. That was important, but that's not where she was called. But right. what I find, yeah, and the question has, I often find myself talking about false pride and false humility in, in this sort of discernment because it's not about what I can do but what God can do through me. And some people right. say, but, you know, I'm not worthy of this and I'm very rude and I say, no, you're not, but God wants to use you anyway. It's not about <laughs> you. It's, and, and, you know, I come back to, to Catherine of Siena. If you become who God made you to be, you will set the world on fire. And I talk about people like Caroline Chisholm who did extraordinary things. And most people don't know that she had nine children, that she was a married woman, that they used all their own personal money to further her work. Mm. So, you know, they're not people looking for badges. Maybe I could throw this at father then. Um, a lot of people seem to believe that they have there's a lot of people around blaming the bishop like why don't the bishops do something about this or why doesn't my priest do this in most cases the bishops and the priests have particular roles they have they're administering the sacraments and that's their they're into and they're overseeing uh, the spiritual you know work of the parish but the, most of the things that that can be done in christian life are done with lay charisms and most of the time Parish priests would would like to have an embarrassment of riches of people coming forward and say, w- "Would you mind if I do this, Father, or that?" And not not I'm not talking about interfering with liturgical or, or sacramental matters. I'm talking about how how about you know what would you mind if I do this in this parish? I think one of the things that maybe partly what we're talking about in terms of 
living the faith is each one of us understanding what it is that God is calling each of us to do and then doing it. And part of our problem in our modern Australian context, specifically Australian context, is um, a lack of, as as Clara says, of discernment. And that's true as much. Oh, that's true of everyone in the church. I think. I think there is a crisis in lack of discernment. I mean, I would say one of the things that I think um, needs to be more clearly sort of lived and said. Um, for priests is that parishes exist for the purpose of worshiping God. And newsflash, that's what they're there for. <laughs> they're there to for as places of worship, right? And they're there as places of worship, which um, and also of upbuilding, if you like, of formation to some extent. But but you know there are other ways of being, and there are other contexts in which we're formed in the faith too. But um, they have those kind of roles, and that's really where our energies and efforts and and you know that's where priests should be putting their effort, in my view. That that if you if you um, have a soccer club where no one plays soccer. <laughs> then, and and you're just living off the memory of having played soccer 50 years ago. Well, only the people who were there 50 years ago will still be there 50 years later. Yes. Um, we we need in our parishes, uh, you know, to be focused on our work as priests, which is you know, leading worship, doing that well, uh, making it. Up, you know, uplifting and fulfilling and and beautiful and good for people, and and then in a certain sense, uh, if we do our job, and we we actually put the efforts where where actually God actually has made me a priest and said, okay, Sam, that's your part in all of this. Well, then that kind of hopefully that means everyone else has has room to do their part as well. And what's more, they have the grace, you know. Because if that's being done well and it's attractive and so forth, then then the parish will be lively. I mean, it's a it's a supernatural endeavour. It's not a natural endeavour. I, I think I, I think there are two points: worship and formation. Because unfortunately, most people don't take advantage of other formation opportunities outside of what happens at Sunday mass. But I, I would say that yes, the priest makes Christ present on the altar and the laity have to make Christ present wherever their lives take them, wherever they live out their lives. And and the two relationships have to, to work together. And I think I, I've, I'm very wary of the example you gave of people going to Father saying, I think we should do this. I think <laughs> lay people should know what they should be doing in the world. And, you know, again, to quote um, Pope Benedict, he talked about us being co-responsible for the mission of the church, not responsible yes. for the same thing. The laity are not responsible for the liturgy. The laity are responsible for making Christ present in the world. And right. I think we have too much clericalization of laity and too much too many priests who <laughs> don't want to be clerical, of, want to be lay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> My question was a little bit provocative because I, I don't think, and I'll, the answer I was looking for, maybe I was being a bit too vague, is is simply a, a priest should be saying, well, let's not 
that's not for me to say yes or no to. That's your what Christian I said, life, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I think you I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in other words, we should stop looking for permission or mandates or, or some kind of official Look, status. We should just go and be Christ in, in the world. I get people now asking me because I'm working for the Bishops Conference, why don't the bishops do X? <laughs> I think it's actually we don't often get people doing what the bishops actually tell us to do. If something's not happening at the grassroots, no mandate from the top is going to make it happen. That's yeah. right. And and to be honest, um, we've it's almost a blame game in some cases that it's convenient to blame someone else. Someone else should do it. Although we've gotten used to sort of expecting our government to do things. That's why I think it's a particularly Australian thing. Because I think Australians are a little too, I mean, there are advantages to it. You go to Turkey and you look at um, you look at average hotels as you tour around Turkey and then you go, gosh, I'm glad we've got Aust the Australian building code and standards. Uh, <laughs> I'm much more confident in the, the building that I'm living in for, for a day or a night or two is not going to fall over uh, while I'm in it. Um, so there is, you know, there, there is some good to to this. Nevertheless, Australians are a little too sit back and someone else will do it. The government will do it. You know, we 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 do need to be a bit more proactive as a culture. I think people yeah. need to go. You know, the, Mary McKillop's our first saint, and I think we should learn her lesson. If you see a need, do something about it. That's yep. That's the message. That's her well, message. That is, that's probably a great place to wind up um, today's podcast because that's that's pretty much the message, isn't it? If you see a need, do something about it, and especially if you've got the talent to do it. That's it for this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking or arguing with your podcast device, let us know, especially if you think we could go on and talk more about this topic. I'm sure our guests would love to come back and renew the discussion if we go in a particular direction. You can subscribe to the podcast at thiscatholiclife.com.au. You can tell us what you liked or didn't like on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or Discord. Search us out there, thiscatholiclife.com.au. Write us a review on iTunes if you get the time. It helps us to be known to other people. Remember that this is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast and we think that's an idea worth getting behind. So tell your friends. All right, a quick short shout out to some people. Father Sam. I was hoping you weren't going to ask me first. I forgot to think of something. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to shout out to all my parishioners who I missed terribly. Um, I hope that you're keeping safe and sane and be, being kind to one another um, as we're sort of all a little bit, uh, you know, going stir-crazy being locked up. Um, and I'm certain you're, in, you're all in my prayers. Clara. Oh, well, there you go. I'm not at all prepared either, but I'd like to give a shout out to all those families who are finding a lot more intimacy or have found a lot more intimacy in the period of shutdown. And um, I think also the all the all the positive things that have happened and, and all the people out there who've been reaching out to, to others um, during what was a, a difficult time. Hmm. I'd like to shout out to all the people who've evangelised me. Um, I was born into a Christian home, but the people who, without saying a word, by their Christian example, by their this um, consistent, quiet love, practical love for other people, uh, showed me what it means to be Christ's hands and feet in the world. Um, I'm You're welcome. A reasonable. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I'm okay at talking, but I'm not so great at doing, and those people have really been inspiration to me. So thank you. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to This Catholic Life.